From CPR News in Loveland, this is Colorado Matters. Lest this Valentine's Day get too gooey, we dedicate today's show to the science of heartbreak with the help of Denver author Florence Williams, whose 25-year marriage ended. I've been a science writer for a long time, so when all this weird stuff started happening to me physically, including getting sick, I wanted to know why, and the answers were not to be found in the typical sort of pop music or poetry. And so I sought out some neuroscientists and some immunologists. Including a CU researcher who studies breakups in rodents with the hope of developing a heartbreak pill. Also, the science of bouncing back. It's an antidote to loneliness that you never hear. Beauty is gonna help you with your heartbreak. Is that old car of yours taking up valuable space? Free up some room and make a difference by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is safe and easy. You just have to find the title and the keys, and we'll handle the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Fuel the news and music you rely on by donating your car. Find out how on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in front of a live audience at the historic Rialto Theater in downtown Loveland. Anyone who has loved has also likely lost. Heartbreak is human. In fact, you find it throughout the animal kingdom and it can be studied. Although falling out of love has gotten far less attention scientifically, than falling in. I mean, how is there not a heartbreak pill yet? Well, there are researchers working on that, some of them right here in Colorado, as Florence Williams chronicles in her latest book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. We read it as Valentine's Day counter-programming for our book series, Turn the Page. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's welcome Florence to the heart of Loveland. Thank you so much, Ryan. It is great to be here, and I'm so glad we coordinated on our wardrobe this evening. We are both wearing shades of red. Yes. Uh, This is personal, as the subtitle of the book suggests, because your 25-year marriage ended, initiated by your now ex-husband. Of course, it was an emotional wallop, but the separation and eventual divorce took a huge toll on you physically. Florence, how did it change your body? Immediately, I felt, I describe it in the book like a buzzsaw without any wood to cut. There's this kind of um, anxiety or stress that feeds itself in this hypervigilance. You know, it's hard to sleep. Your head is spinning. You can't kind of rest these ideas, your brain won't stop. And I I think I was just really surprised by the physical sensations of this kind of stress. Was this your first serious breakup? Yeah, it totally was. Yeah, I mean, I met my then husband when I was 18. We dated for seven years, and then we were married for 25 years. So it was really my entire adult life with one person. And of course, my friends had gone through heartbreaks and, you know, were devastated by them. And I always thought they were being kind of melodramatic. You know, I was like, well, obviously that relationship just wasn't meant to be. Just get over it. And then. (laughs) (laughs) And then. How (laughs) How old were you when the marriage ended? I think I was just a few months away from being 50. So that also felt like, whoa, I can't believe this is happening to me when I'm about to be 50. There was something about that that seemed kind of like a cosmic joke. I have to say, though, the fact that your first serious heartbreak came at 50 makes me want to play the world's smallest violin for you. (laughs) Yeah, but (laughs) I made up for it. Changes could be measured in your blood, Florence Williams. Yes. How so? 
Well, you know, I've been a science writer for a long time, so when all this weird stuff started happening to me physically, including getting sick, I wanted to know why. Why was this happening? And the answers were not to be found in the typical sort of pop music or poetry. Uh, and so I sought out some neuroscientists and some immunologists. Uh, you know, I, I went down this kind of long path of talking to people. Uh, one of the people I talked to pretty early on who was so helpful was Dr. Stephen Cole, who's an immunologist, a psychoimmunologist at UCLA. A psychoimmunologist. Actually, I think the official long term, it's even more of a mouthful, psychoneuroimmunologist. Wow. So he has really made his career in studying loneliness. We've known for a long time that people who consider themselves lonely um, have a higher rate of death, uh, at higher risk of a number of diseases. And he's been able to actually look at their immune systems and look at the genetic factors in their immune systems, specifically in their white blood cells, to find out why, like how do their cells listen for loneliness? And is that why they're getting sicker? And so he said, why don't you come to the lab and we'll draw some blood and then we'll draw it again in three months and then we'll draw it again in six months and we'll draw it again in 18 months after you try these various kind of heartbreak cures. This and is so a refrain throughout the book. Yes. You getting a blood draw. I get a blood draw. And at your rock bottom, what does your blood tell you? Not even at my rock bottom, but even a year out, I still had, in his words, the blood of a lonely person. Did divorce give you diabetes? I can't say that for sure, but I did get type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease. I was diagnosed about six months, I think, after the split. I ran into other people also who were diagnosed with this typically juvenile disease yeah. um, as adults after divorce and also after just very traumatic life events. Um, it seems that uh, some of these autoimmune diseases are triggered by stress. And so, you know, you have to kind of wonder what was going on there. What does it mean to have lonely blood, though? <laughs> like, can you say more about the markers or? Yes. So Dr. Cole particularly looks at a suite of about 53 genes to see which ones are getting upregulated and which ones are getting downregulated. And these are genes that are particularly associated with, um, for example, inflammation. So when we've undergone a stressful event, our immune cells, which get made about every three days in the bone marrow, respond to our environment. And they say, uh-oh, this person's really stressed out. She feels abandoned because she's just lost her primary social partner, big social ties. You know, we are a social species. We feel safe when we're amongst our loved ones. When we don't, we feel threatened. And so our immune systems try to be helpful by saying, okay, she's alone on the savanna. Maybe there's a tiger lurking next door. Um, we better up her inflammation to get ready for battle. You know, she's about to be attacked by something. Whoa. And so that's why the inflammation markers go up. But when we're just feeling like we've been abandoned on the savanna, um, it's actually not a very helpful response. And over weeks and months, uh, this is the kind of inflammation that leads to chronic disease. Other changes you write about, you constantly sought warmth, heat. Yes. <laughs> That's another mammalian response. So how do we feel safe? We feel safe sometimes by physically huddling. And we know that, you know, rodents do this, right? It feels great. Um, and so one of the things I found out is there is science about this showing that when we are holding a warm mug, for example, or when we take a hot bath, it calms us down. And I noticed, even before I read the science, that I was cold a lot, and I wanted to snuggle up with my hot water bottle, and I wanted to carry around my thermos. I wanted to take long baths. So I felt very justified in this when I started to <laughs> read the science. And in fact, so this is now advice that I give to people who are heartbroken or suffering some other kind of big loss where they feel lonely. I'm like, go for those hot baths. You swore more. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I was swearing like a sailor. Uh, and there's science about that too. 
So we know from studies where, you know, researchers sometimes do these kind of sadistic things and they'll, <laughs> they'll in a lab, they'll have their research subjects put their hands into like very icy cold water, for example. And, and they'll ask people to maybe use their favorite curse words or not. Um, the ones who are cursing <laughs> can hold their arms in the water longer and they have, you know, sort of a better reaction to pain. And it's prob it probably has something to do with, you know, before the football team goes out on the field or before, you know, troops go into battle. When you are cursing like this, it seems to kind of up your stress hormones, you know, in a way that can make you a better fighter. Well, we asked for some of your favorite, or is it least favorite, breakup songs. <laughs> Throughout the hour, we'll hear some of those tracks. As we head to our first break, a montage of some of your top picks, or again, rock bottom ones. More heartbreak to come from the Rialto Theater in Loveland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs> In Colorado, that includes theater, dance, music, visual art, and more. With so much happening, it can be tough to keep up. I'm CPR arts reporter Eden Lane. Every Thursday, I shine a spotlight on what's happening and the art news you want to know across the state. The CO Arts Spotlight. Listen every Thursday during Morning Edition and All Things Considered, and read it on CPR.org. With support from the law firm of Alan Vallone, Wolf, Helfrich, and Factor. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The term heartsick isn't just hyperbole. A breakup can jeopardize your health. That's what Denver science writer Florence Williams learned firsthand when her 25-year marriage ended. Her search for understanding and healing resulted in a book called Heartbreak. We read it together for Turn the Page. And now back to the Rialto Theater in Loveland. You write early on in the book, if you place someone who has recently suffered heartbreak in a scanner, parts of the brain light up that are very closely related to the parts that fire after receiving a burn or electrical shock. And indeed, you introduce us to the scientists of social rejection, including Zoe Donaldson at CU Boulder, who studies voles, a type of rodent. Uh, it just so happens that she's been on our show, and so I thought we'd let her introduce her work for herself. Let's listen back. Like people, voles can form these long-term bonds with their mating partner. And what that means is if you can form a bond, you can also lose a bond. And this is actually really rare amongst mammals. So only about 3 to 5% of mammals have this capacity to form these bonds. And that means it's pretty rare, and you can't just use mice or rats to study this. So monogamy, pretty rare in the animal world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, in the mammalian world, it's much more common in birds. Um, so 90% of birds are monogamous, and it's very rare in mammals. Huh. How did someone find out that voles are, you know, committed? So this is a great story, because it goes back to a field ecologist who was working in Illinois. And he put these live traps out there, because he just wanted to get a sense of the dynamics of rodent populations, and what he realized is that he often caught the same two voles together in the same traps. He would, he would catch them, release them, and then he would find them again in the same trap over and over. And so he thought, you know, this is really not typical. Like, this is not what you see for rodents. Mm. So he thought, maybe these guys are monogamous. Maybe these pairs are bonded. At CU, Donaldson, who's a behavioral neuroscientist, has what you refer to as heartbreak hotel. Yeah. 
She arranges marriages among the bulls, so she'll pair them up, um, they will mate, and then sadly she, like the fates, will intervene and cause little divorces. So she'll separate some of them, and what she wants to find out is mostly how they deal with this loss. So what she finds is that even bulls experience kind of this cascade of difficult hormones going through their brains. They put out more stress hormones. They pine for their lost love. So they have this kind of analog of what we call longing uh, and grief. So sometimes she'll put them uh, in a box and she'll have this lever in the box with the vole who has been left behind. And the vole has to press the lever in order to be reunited on the other side of a door with the lost loved one. At first it's really easy. The vole just presses the lever maybe once, the door opens, and there is wife number one. <laughs> but then she'll make it harder. And the vole will have to press the lever two times or 10 times or 20 times. And she's interested in seeing how much effort the vole is willing to do to reunite with the lost partner when the vole sort of gives up, uh, and how long it takes for the vole to finally accept that wife number one is no longer there. Right now she sounds just cruel. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I know that's not true of her. What are her ends? These are a means to what end? Yeah, her ends are really to study what we call sometimes complicated grief or um, prolonged grief. You know, we all know sometimes it takes people longer to recover from a loss. And I think she's really interested in finding out, you know, why some people really struggle with the acceptance piece more, why it takes longer. You know, she's also posited some really interesting kind of interventions for this, including potentially uh, some drugs that don't necessarily make you forget your lover. You know, it's not like that movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So the idea is that, you know, you can still have these memories of your loved one, but perhaps under the influence of a certain kind of drug, there's one called like dicyclosporin, uh, it can speed up the learning associated with accepting this loss, potentially. Whoa. A drug that would speed up acceptance. But couldn't that be used for all sorts of things, like beyond heartbreak? Yes, you would think there are lots of major world problems that we could use this drug for. I found it really interesting that we're using it for the thing we fear most, which is the loss of love. But I want to apply it to like, Accept climate change. <laughs> or speed up learning for how to fix climate change. That yeah. would be great. Okay. Maybe some other researchers studying that, but certainly love is really up there in the priority list of problems to deal with. Your quest was to find things that would make you better, but as you write in the book, there were times that you just felt bereft by the information you were receiving. I think in part because there are such health effects of not finding love again. There are health effects. You know, we know from a lot of the research, the epidemiological research, that people who are married do seem to live longer, um, but especially men. This advantage really accrues especially to men. This is sort of another injustice. Um, and the economic data is really grim as well for single women. So they're much more likely to live in poverty, for example. So yeah, I mean, the more I learned, it was kind of like, oh, stop, I don't really want to hear all this. But I learned tips, right, for how to kind of try to beat the odds, if you will. Yeah, a little give bit. Us a, why don't you give us a few of those now? Yeah, I mean, one of the early conversations I had was with a psychologist named Paula Williams at the University of Utah. And she said, yes, absolutely. We know that people who are divorced die younger. They are more likely to get ill. But we know that there are some people who really seem to thrive. So we look at what makes some individuals more resilient. And one of the things that her lab is finding is that it's people who are prone to cultivating awe. 
and who are sensitive to beauty, these are the people who are the most resilient in the face of sort of the slings and arrows of life. And, you know, when she said that, I just, I remember I leaned forward in my chair and I was like, okay, I know I'm someone who likes nature. I could maybe learn to become even better at finding beauty and finding awe. I think I need to do that if I'm going to try to beat these odds. And so that actually became my project for the next two years over the course of this book. How can I find awe? How can I get better at finding awe? Um, and then what can I learn to help other people know this? Because it's, it's an antidote to loneliness that you never hear. Hmm. You know, beauty is going to help you with your heartbreak. Like, no one talks about that. And I thought, yet, yeah, here is evidence that it will help make you more resilient. And so a good portion of the latter part of the book is spent on a river. Yes. Seeking beauty. Seeking awe. That is one of my interventions. (laughs) I decided I wanted to spend 30 days on a river in the wilderness. And I spent about two weeks of that with friends and family. And then I decided to spend two weeks of it by myself on a solo canoe journey. Um, And that was through the lower canyons of the Green River in Utah. I had a couple of intentions for doing that. One was I certainly wanted to find myself face to face with this beauty and this awe. But I also liked the metaphor of it. You know, I felt like I needed to learn how to row my own boat now Hmm. after being with someone my entire adult life. I had to learn how to take care of myself. And I thought sort of rowing my own boat might be a good way to kind of access some bravery. I was really afraid of my future. I was afraid of a future alone. Um, so that, that was the idea. I'm going to leave that there. We will just say it didn't really work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to read the book to find out why. <laughs> but when I think about the qualities of awe, I think about how Awe is present-centered. Awe makes you stop, maybe get rid of the intrusive thoughts, yes, and reconnect with the moment. And that is an antidote to the churning and the buzzsaw, it occurs to me. That's exactly right. One of the things we know about the science of awe is that when we experience it, our brains kind of shut down for a minute, our thinking brains. Um, We are taken outside of ourselves, and we're confronted with this beauty outside of us. There's something in that act of um, selflessness, unselfing, that is really, really great for our mental health. Um, It shifts our perspective. It makes us realize maybe our problems are not as big as we think they are. Maybe we are not actually the center of the universe, even though we feel like we are. Hmm. The science shows it makes us feel not only connected to the world around us, but it actually makes us feel more connected to other people, too. So we act in ways that are more generous. Hmm. After we look at, for example, photographs of a whale or a waterfall in a lab, you know, we give away more lottery tickets. You know, it's these things really that we all need more of. And I I feel like we don't experience awe in the way that we used to, you know, in our deep evolutionary past. If you think about it, we used to see the Milky Way every night. We used to see the sunset every night. We used to dance and sing, you know, around the fire. We had these ways of countering the sort of daily stress of life that we don't anymore. And so instead, we, I think we cycle into our own worlds and our own problems, and it just creates more conflict. Denver author Florence Williams is our guest, author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. And Turn the Page with Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour, the heartbreak cure that worked best for her and what she did with her wedding ring. We'll also take questions from our audience at the Rialto Theater in Loveland. This is a Valentine's Day special from CPR News and KRCC.
the political blame games and bickering can be exhausting. But if you tune out, you can miss hearing about the powerful ways our elected representatives can shape our lives. I'm CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim. My job is to make sure you know about the important things Colorado's members of Congress do, the policies they advocate, the ones they oppose, and what it all means for you. Follow all our government reporting at CPR.org. You might say that Florence Williams turned her divorce into a science experiment. After her 25-year marriage ended, the Denver author sought to understand why her health was suffering and how to bounce back. We read her book, Heartbreak, for our series, Turn the Page. More now from the Rialto Theater in where else but downtown Loveland. I'm right you never name your ex. You have, like, various nicknames for him, but you never name him. Correct. Yeah. Did you seek his permission to write this? I didn't seek his permission to write it, but I did show him a draft before I turned the book in. I didn't want to surprise him with the book. The book is really not much about him, and it's not much about the marriage. Yeah. But I didn't want him to be surprised by it. I wanted to give him the opportunity to make some changes or ask for some changes. And so he did. Did he know you were writing it when you handed it to him? Or was the handing of the book the first moment he learned of its existence? It was probably the first moment he knew of its existence. Did any part of you write the book, and I ask this as someone who has been broken up with a few times (laughs) before the age of 54. I think I know where this is going. There were times I wanted the person who broke up with me to see how heartbroken I was, thinking, if he sees this, he'll change his mind. You know, if he sees that I am bereft, it will change the course of this relationship. Did any part of you write this book thinking that it would be a Hail Mary? Well, first of all, let me ask you, did it work? No. No, no it never does, right? Uh, you it know, and, and years later, I'm really grateful it didn't work. Right. But if they really cared about you, you know, that might have changed the course of the relationship to begin with, I think. Oh. So when I, <laughs> when he read the draft, it was really interesting, actually, his response. Um, I mean, I think part of him was a little bit worried about how the world would view him. But I think also a part of him, to his credit, he said, wow, you know, I actually had no idea how hard you took this, and I'm sorry. Like, he apologized. And that, that felt really good, actually. You and your ex have two kids, and I'd like you to read an excerpt related to them. It's a painful passage, but Florence, the writing is exquisite. Every other week, the kids would leave and the dog would go with them. I would hug them goodbye and scratch the dog's ears, and my not-so-little son would drive with his brand-new driver's license in the old Subaru down the hill to the husband's house. Into the car went their suitcases, textbooks, dance bag, dog leash. The kids were growing closer to each other. I could see it. Maybe it was because my son, as a driver, had become useful and helpful to his sister, or because they welcomed the consistency they gave each other in a disruptive time, or because they were just growing up a little faster, together, into measured, practical people. They put on a game face for their parents and for each other. It was impressive, even inspirational. It made me want to put on a game face, too. But alone, I cried. I would turn back to the drafty meagerness of my house. The dog hair and my children's skin cells floated in slow motion through the light streaming in from the windows, the last vestiges of life in a suddenly vacated space. One's children aren't supposed to pick up and leave their homes like this week after week. While they were gone, I accepted nearly every speaking gig whether for travel money or for real money. Yes, I'll go to your library in Akron, Ohio, or your middle school in Valparaiso, Indiana in January. Get me the out of here. 
The shock of heartbreak and the pain of loss are devastating, but what often comes after scared me more than anything. It is being and fearing being deeply existentially alone. There's that swearing. Yes. <laughs> You're awfully candid in this book about your part in the divorce, about your health, about the kinky Lothario you meet on the rebound. <laughs> How did you strike the balance between the scientific exploration and the personal journey? That was really challenging. I knew that I needed to interweave them in order to sort of justify both. And so I left out personal parts of the story that didn't have kind of a scientific match. And I left out science that didn't have its counterpart in my personal story. Oh, that's a nice way to organize it. This book isn't just about heartbreak, it's also about loneliness. And one researcher you meet calls loneliness one of the most toxic risk factors known to human health. And there's a lot of loneliness in the world, isn't there? There's a lot, and I'm sure this is well known by now, there's kind of more than ever, uh, even since the pandemic. Our Surgeon General calls us living through an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, and, and it's interesting because, you know, some of us might think older people are lonelier, but the data really shows that it's young people today who are the most lonely. That's sort of 18 to 28 age group in particular. Um, so in some ways, they're the most connected technologically, but at, at the same time, they're the loneliest. And because of that, they're really suffering. The high levels of depression, anxiety. So loneliness as a scientific subject is really a priority. And what's cool is that there is now a lot of data to sort of support what we know about people's immune systems, that it should be a priority for our health. Um, it's no wonder that the Surgeon General is taking this on because people are getting sicker. Tell us about men's sheds in the UK. <laughs> as a potential solution. Yes, so the UK was the first country to actually designate a minister of loneliness. And among the many projects that they're undertaking there are ways to bring people together. So they have things called chatty buses, where people can ride buses just to start conversations. There are knitting groups meeting in pubs during the day. And now we are seeing these men's sheds, which are basically workshops with power tools where men can go and drink some tea and build a birdhouse. <laughs> and what they find with men in particular is that um, men aren't as good at women as sort of talking face to face and talking and talking and talking, but they do like to do things side by side. And so working on a project together, eventually a little bit of conversation will kind of seep in sideways. <laughs> and uh, they're finding it really helpful. You try ecstasy therapy, mushrooms, <laughs> EMDR, which is an eye movement thing, meditation. Beyond awe, what was the single most helpful intervention to deal with heartbreak? You know, it's funny. I, I felt like all the interventions I tried were a little bit helpful and they were all a little bit disappointing hmm. because there was no kind of magic bullet that made me feel suddenly cured and shiny and new. But you mentioned beyond awe. I would actually say that the psychedelic therapy that I did was one of the most effective things for me. But I think the pathway by which that works is actually an awe pathway. So, you know, when you're having a psychedelic trip, you sort of feel like you are one with the universe. Um, in some ways, you feel like you are part of the divine. It's very powerful. It's like awe on hormones. Hmm. Spoiler alert. I want you to discuss your wedding ring. I want to know what you considered doing with it after the divorce and what you ultimately ended up doing with it. You know, it's such an important symbol of a marriage. 
and I had a couple of ideas. Uh, in Japan, I found out that there are these divorce ceremonies, which seems like a good idea. We don't have them here. We don't have ways to really ritualize divorce, which is interesting because so many of us go through it. Of course, we ritualize marriage up the wazoo. Um, so in Japan, um, <laughs> the bride and groom who are separating will have a ceremony where they take their wedding rings and they actually smash them with a big hammer. <laughs> and I thought that seemed kind of satisfying, but also a little bit violent. <laughs> and ultimately, what I ended up doing was creating this little boat made out of lettuce. And I tied my wedding ring to it kind of on a skewer. And then I sent it down the Potomac River. With the idea that the lettuce would biodegrade. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, rivers are such an important metaphor, and they're also such an important kind of scene setting throughout this book. Uh, I grew up running rivers. I sought, you know, the river as, as part of my cure. And so it just seemed fitting to watch this symbol sort of go down the river in its natural course. I hear people of modest means thinking, you put your wedding ring <laughs> oh, in the river? Let me explain. <laughs> It was a really flimsy wedding ring. <laughs> this was not an expensive wedding ring. I should have maybe known. But... How's your love life? <laughs> it's not, it, it's great, actually. I was going to say it's not bad, but it's, um, I, I feel like heartbreak changes us. I don't feel like we return to the person we were before. I feel like if we're lucky, we come out of it with a softer heart and a more open heart and one that is, you know, scarred, but also ultimately has a greater capacity for love. And one of the great things about, I think, dating in middle age is that, you know, everyone has been through heartbreak by now. And there are a lot of people out there who have grown a lot and learned a lot. And so I feel like I have a greater capacity for love. I am fortunate to have a partner I feel like also has a great capacity for love. And um, that's really been beautiful. How is your blood? <laughs> the last we checked my blood, uh, I think it was about two years after the split, all the arrows were going in the right direction. So my inflammation markers um, were changing in a way that still made me good at fighting viruses and diseases, hopefully, when the pandemic was breaking kind of just as I found this out. So that was comforting. But also in ways that sort of took down the chronic inflammation. Mm. So I think for me, you know, I still have the diabetes. That is not something that you just magically get rid of. Autoimmune diseases will be part of me. But I feel like it's, you know, hopefully not as bad as it could have been. And the arrows are going in the right direction. Denver science writer Florence Williams. Her latest is Heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey. Coming up, the Museum of Broken Relationships. Yes, there really is such a place. And questions from our audience. Why must loneliness be bad? And isn't it better to leave a bad marriage? On Valentine's Day, this is Turn the Page with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Just outside Roxborough Park, a little more than a century ago, the town of Silica seemed as solid as any other. Maybe more so because the silicated brick company built it. Silicated bricks were said to be stronger than fired clay bricks. They improve with age, the company claimed, as it churned out 30,000 a day, stamped with an S. Demand was so solid, the railroad came, and a sturdy town grew. Houses, a grocery store, even a dance hall where 50 neighbors once gathered for a birthday party. All report having had a fine time, said the Record Journal newspaper on March 24, 1911. But two years later, the silicated brick company turned to dust. After that, the town was dismantled and weathered away. Today, the only reminder of silica is an old limestone kiln. 
an official Douglas County landmark. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With support from Coble and Company. It's Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. The final part of our conversation now about heartbreak and the science behind it. Denver author Florence Williams joins me on stage at the Rialto Theater in Loveland, where we took questions from fellow readers. Mildred Topfer in Loveland says, what if anything from your self-experimentations with trying to get better stuck around? Definitely the cultivating awe in a big way. Um, I participated- you, you had, I just want to say that you wrote a book before this called The Nature Fix, and it was all about the ways that nature can heal us and that our health is better when we're connected to it. So this, this was not a complete eureka moment for you. Right. But would you say that the integration of awe is even deeper now? I would. And I would say with the Nature Fix, you know, the subtitle of that book was um, How Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. And I felt like with the Heartbreak book, it was all of a sudden like, how can this help us survive? How can it help us survive trauma and grief? And one of the studies that I participated in while I was writing this book was a study that I kind of called the microdosing awe study. And it was how can you go about your daily life yes. and not when you can't always go to the Grand Canyon, right, or climb the top of the Tetons? How can we bring awe into our daily lives? And there was a study going on that asked the participants to spend literally like 90 seconds a day just looking at something beautiful and taking a few breaths. That's it. So when you go on your walk, you know make an effort to look at a blossom. Or if you're inside even, you can admire a houseplant or your bowl of soup and just sit with it. Just to sit with this object of beauty, really focus on it, take a few deep breaths. And what the researchers found after, I think it was just four weeks of this study, is that symptoms of depression reduced 30%, as well as people's symptoms of physical pain and symptoms of anxiety. And what's really cool about doing this experiment once or twice a day is that you actually become better at just noticing beauty. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that is something that has really stayed with me. And when I'm going for my walks, even in Denver, you know, where you're not on a wilderness trail, um, you know, I can notice the trees and I can see how the snowflakes are sitting on the trees. Um, And I I just feel like I'm better at finding beauty. I actually feel like I did learn how to cultivate that better. Um, And it's something I really love to talk about and encourage people um, to also practice. Tell us about the Museum of Broken Relationships in Zagreb, Croatia. It's a very clever museum. Um, It was started by a couple who split up and they remained friends. Um, They had this teddy bear Uh, that one of them had given to the other. And they were like, what do we do with this teddy bear? And they decided to sort of put it on display as a way to kind of commemorate their relationship. And they were struck by the fact that there is no good way to ritualize heartbreak. And they thought, wouldn't it be great if we just asked people from around the world to send in an object and a one paragraph story about what that object means. And they were inundated with contributions from people all over the world. What they did was they took these objects and they displayed them very beautifully under glass, really beautifully lit. But some of the objects are kind of strange and hilarious. Um, So you walk through this museum and for example, there's a breast implant. (laughs) And the story says something like, um, he wanted me to get a breast implant or get breast implants. I extracted the implant just like I extracted him. <laughs> so you, you walk through this museum and you're, you're, you just sort of crack up at some of the stuff. Um, some of the stories are still, you know, searing and painful. Um, someone sent in a scab from their lover's leg that she had saved for 20 years. You know, uh, there are just some bizarre things. But ultimately, the ultimate, I think, emotional experience is that, wow, everyone has a heartbreak story. And isn't this an amazing kind of Mm. communal experience that we go through? 
Mike L. Again, here in Loveland, wants to know what part forgiveness plays. Mm, that is such a great question. And I just want to point out that it's not just forgiveness of the partner, right? It's the forgiveness of the self. Yes, forgiveness. I, you know, I, I think forgiveness, honestly, is, is kind of a controversial idea because there are some experts who say, oh, you really need to forgive uh, in order to recover. And there are some people who say, you know what, actually there are some things that are kind of unforgivable and we should honor that also. But I, I guess I kind of stick with the Buddhists on this one, which is that if we can learn to extend compassion to the people even who hurt us, that is ultimately going to be better for us kind of spiritually and probably for our immune cells as well. We can do it. Ashley Giles in Golden wants some dirt. <laughs> Ashley? Ashley, <laughs> Ashley says, Ryan found it curious that you studied heartbreak in order to get over it, but you also had some heated affairs that seemed to help you process your loss. Can you speak to that experience? Ashley asks diplomatically. Why, yes, Ashley, I can. Um, because, I can speak to it because there's science. <laughs> so, you know, the conventional wisdom, I think, with a lot of this is you should not get into another relationship too quickly. You know, you need to heal yourself and figure yourself out and all that. Um, but I was like, well, where's the science? You know, is there science showing that we actually shouldn't get into a rebound? Because I, I did have an interest in getting into rebounds. <laughs> I was like, I want those rebounds. Um, and so, so there was some science actually showing that um, people who jump into new relationships pretty quickly after a breakup actually do experience a boost in self-confidence and a boost in self-esteem. They tend to forget about their ex more easily. Huh. Um, but I think that there are a lot of caveats here. I mean, I would never recommend that for everyone. I think the, you know, the key to your nervous system recovering is that you need to feel safe, right? So I think these relationships need to be safe for you and also hopefully for the other people. But in terms of the science, it does kind of support it. Well, it also occurs to me that sex, I mean, if it's good enough, can be very centering, very present centering. I mean, if we're, yeah. if we're seeking beauty and awe. And warmth. I mean, that's something you literally say in sex. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, and also warmth. You know, the physical warmth, physical touch, uh, we know that that really directly counteracts cortisol because it releases oxytocin, which counteracts cortisol. Um, so it's good for your nervous system uh, if it feels safe. We have a few questions that get at this idea that India Wood in Boulder is asking, do many people make friends with loneliness such that they are alone but not lonely? And Heather Alderman in Fort Collins asks similarly, why do we need to cure loneliness? Loneliness is a subjective term and psychologists will say that the definition of loneliness is a state of not being happy with being alone. Uh -huh. It's a feeling of absence. There are other words like solitude that also convey being alone, but in a generative and positive way. And there are lots of examples throughout literature and throughout history and among people we know who are absolutely delighted to be alone. Um, they do a great job of feeling the solitude, um, but not feeling like they're missing out on something. I eventually actually really came around from feeling really afraid of being alone to really savoring and enjoying being alone. You know, it's a creative place to be. Um, you know, there's a lot of self-knowledge and self-awareness. I mean, all these things that can happen when you're alone that don't happen so easily when you're in a crowd or a group. I would also be the last person to tell you the only way to cure heartbreak is to get into another romantic relationship. I think a lot of people find very fulfilling and meaningful relationships with friends um, through their communities, through their families, 
So there are a lot of ways to counteract loneliness that don't involve romance. Of course, I think our society is so hung up on the romance narrative, and I think that that does a disservice, actually, to most of us, a lot of us. As we wind down, Crystal Hines in Firestone asks, can you speak to any data about which situation is worse for your health, feeling lonely in a failing marriage, Mm. or being alone after divorce? You know, we've spoken so much about the health effects of divorce, but there are the health effects of staying too. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I uh, did learn that from talking to psychologists, uh, also at the University of Utah. There is a lot of data showing that people who are in bad marriages or marriages in which they don't feel supported also suffer health effects. And in fact, you know, about half of all marriages report that they're sort of meh, you know, they're not great. And it's those meh marriages that can sometimes make us feel insecure and unsafe and be bad for our health. So better to be alone and happy and feel safe than to be in a bad marriage, probably according to this data. Florence, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Denver journalist Florence Williams has written Heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey. We've been playing people's breakup songs throughout the show. We're going to leave you with hers, a cover of I Will Survive by Cake. I'm Ryan Warner, with thanks to everyone in CPR's Advanced Production Services team. Support comes from the Western States Arts Federation and the National Endowment for the Arts. From the Rialto Theater in Loveland, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Oh, now go walk out the door, just turn around, now you're not welcome anymore. Weren't you the one who tried to break me with desire? Did you think I'd crumble? Did you think I'd lay down and I will survive, I will survive